You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Make sure your cell phones are off. We are recording this interview to be turned into a podcast. So if your cell phone goes off with a Bee Gees ringtone, your embarrassment will be recorded for eternity. So, And uh, secondly, I wanted to let you know about an upcoming event we have, which is going to be Julia Glass, a fantastic novelist. That'll be September 13th, which is a Monday night at 7.30. And uh, here to conduct our interview with Miss Vita is Rick Kleffel. Uh, you know him from KUSP's The Agony Column, and uh, we are delighted to have him here to do this interview, so I'm going to turn it over to Rick to introduce our author tonight. I'm Rick Cleffel, and I do a sh- literary uh, broadcast on KUSP Sunday nights from 6 to 7. It's called The Agony Column. I pair it with a podcast that I do almost daily. I'm up to about 920, I think, this week, uh, interviews and conversations and readings from all sorts of events. And if you want more information on that, you can get some cards up here and you can sign up and I'll let you know when I do other events. I do all sorts of events and generally involve talking to wonderful authors, though few so wonderful as tonight's author. Our author tonight, Venda La Vida, is a woman who knows women. <coughs> This is a very difficult task, as any woman will tell you. She has studied women in nonfiction in her book, Girls on the Verge, where she examined the mating rituals, the rituals that turn girls into women. In her book, Writers on Writers, she and other people interviewed the world's best writers. She's the author of a triptych of novels that view the American woman through a variety of prisms and come up with some really stunning visions. They include, and now you can go, let the northern lights erase your name, and her newest novel is The Lovers. I'd like to welcome uh, Vendela Vida. Thank you. Where are you most comfortable with? Um, with reading? Yeah. I think I'd be more comfortable sitting. But okay, go right ahead. I Thank you so much for coming out. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Um, I also want to say that the young gentleman who introduced Rick um, is a Zach Ruskin, who is a former employee of this bookstore, but also, um, more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, a um, devoted McSweeney's and Believer intern this summer um, in San Francisco. Um, and so we're very thankful to our interns, so thank you for for interning and also for introducing us tonight. I um, am so happy to be here. I also left the house. For those of you who have young kids know how hard it is to leave the house without a huge drama, and I managed to leave the house without a drama, but then once I was in my car, I realized I'd forgotten my book that I usually read from and my notes in the house, but it was just too late to go back. I knew if I went back, it would be a disaster and I would never get here. And my one-year-old, my four-year-old would be like acting like I was leaving for two years. Um, Before I left this morning, they were confirming, my four-year-old was confirming that Santa Cruz was in this country. She wanted to make sure that I was not going out of the country tonight. So, um, and I had to tell her, yes, it was in this country. So she was happy to hear that. 
Mm. So I'm going to read a little bit um, from this new book. I'm going to start about 40 pages in. And all you need to know is it's about a woman named Yvonne who's 53 years old. She's a widow. Um, her husband passed away two years before the start of the book. And she returns to the place where they honeymooned 28 years before, to a town called Dacha, which is in the southwestern corner of Turkey. And she goes there um, in part because she's going to meet her two grown children, her twins, who are in their early 20s, on a cruise at the end of her stay in Dacha. But she mostly goes there, she mostly is using the cruise as an excuse to go back to this town to kind of better, to, she's recently begun to call into question some things that she's believed to be true about her marriage. And she goes back to the place where it started to see and better understand how it might have unraveled. So this is her um, second day and the second morning in the rental house that she's found. And so far, the, she's already become, um, she's already had two frequent visitors, both the landlord, uh, Mr. Selleck, and his wife or ex-wife. She's not sure what their marital agreement is. Um, both of them have frequently already you know, come to her doorstep and confided many things to her. So, so far, it hasn't been much of a vacation. Yvonne was awoken by the sound of people in the house below, something falling to the floor, a man's voice, a woman's voice. It was already light out. Yvonne walked downstairs. Hello, she called out. She heard more voices. In the living room, a man and a boy were sitting on the couch watching television. Can I help you, she said. The boy looked at her. A lock of hair, the shape of a comma, bisected his forehead. The man called for someone else, and for a moment Yvonne felt scared. What if there was a team of burglars? But what had they broken in for? To watch TV? A woman emerged from the kitchen wearing a headscarf and carrying a broom. When she smiled at Yvonne, her sadness was made more profound. She mimed sweeping and scrubbing. Of course, the maid, it must be Wednesday. Oh, hello, Yvonne said. She wanted to take the broom from the woman and tell her to go home. Yvonne had been in the house for less than 36 hours and had left little trace of being there. But she worried that if she did ask the maid to leave, it would mean she wouldn't work and wouldn't be paid by Mr. Selleck, the landlord. The boy was standing at the edge of the living room, peering at Yvonne with parted lips. Hello, she said. Hello, he said, and giggled. Where are you, he said. Where am I from, Yvonne said. The boy didn't say anything. America, she said. The boy smiled. Vermont, she said. The boy's face was blank. Let me show you, Yvonne said. She stepped into the living room and retrieved an atlas she had seen on the bookshelf. The boy's father was watching what looked like a dance-a-thon on TV. The atlas opened to Turkey. She searched for the peninsula in the southwest corner of the country. Dacha was a small black dot on the farthest edge at the point where the Mediterranean and the Aegean came together. She turned the pages until she got to the United States and showed the boy Vermont. She was always surprised by how far away she now lived from New Mexico, where she had been raised. The boy studied the map with great seriousness and carried it to his father, who glanced at the image and then said something stern to the boy. Yvonne knew he was instructing the boy not to bother her, and she didn't know how to tell the father it was okay, that it was a simple company of kids she now missed, that it was her children's childhoods she missed. The boy sat down on the couch, his legs straight out, and picked at a scab on his elbow. From the kitchen came the clank of dishes being washed by hand. Yvonne knew she needed to leave. 
She felt uncomfortable letting the woman clean a clean house, and she felt more uncomfortable watching the man watch TV while his wife scrubbed and mopped and did whatever else she was going to do. Yvonne retreated to the bedroom and changed into her new swimsuit. In the catalog, the one piece had appeared to be innocuously pale yellow, but the package had arrived at her door two days before her trip, too late to be exchanged, and the swimsuit had turned out to be the pungent yellow of a yield sign. She called her next-door neighbor, Anita, and asked her to come over so she'd get her opinion. Anita, who's wearing a hat rimmed with flowers, had pr pronounced the suit fun. Fun, Yvonne repeated to herself as she stood in front of the mirror in Dacha, tightening the straps, lifting the suit higher on her chest. She pulled on a shapeless turquoise sundress her daughter Aurelia had dubbed her missionary attire, packed a bag, and set off in the car with no destination in mind. She drove down the hill to the main road with the air conditioning on high and the windows down low. Despite the maid, or perhaps in part because she had escaped from witnessing the maid, Yvonne was in good spirits. Upon further consideration, she attributed the bulk of this feeling to a conversation with Oslam. Oslam is the landlord's ex-wife or current wife, she's not sure. While she suspected Oslam of lying to her, this only made her more intriguing. Oslam was not Yvonne's problem to solve, and so she could listen, gasp, advise, all without having to watch the consequences unfold. Since Peter's death, Yvonne had come to value friendship more than romance. On the phone with old classmates, she asked probing questions, far more curious about her friend's jobs and children than she'd ever been before. But Yvonne was certain she wouldn't love again, not a man, not sexually. She couldn't picture a man other than Peter lying next to her at night. It seemed as natural as sleeping next to a bear. Nor could she imagine adjusting to the feel of another man's thumb on her nipple, those particular pink marks etched onto his skin by the waistband of his underwear, the frequency of how often he rose in the night to pee. Seventeen months after Peter's death, she had agreed to go on a date set up by a woman who owned the neighborhood health food store. This was the same woman who had told Yvonne about a website that emailed subscribers a new vocabulary word every morning, and Yvonne would sign up for the service because it was free, and she liked the non-surprise of its arrival in her inbox. She could never be sure what other, any other email might say, which long-lost friends or colleagues would have only just learned of Peter's passing and written to offer their condolences, their platitudes. But the word of the day was uncomplicated in its anonymity and consistency. Edward had seemed promising. A former mayor of a small town, he had broad shoulders and hair that appeared to always have just been washed. Yvonne soon understood that Edward was also a subscriber to the Word of the Day email, most likely at the store owner's prompting as well. Each time they had gone out together, to a Sunday brunch, to dinner, to a graduation ceremony for seeing eye dogs for the blind, his daughter was an instructor at the school. He had incorporated a recent word of the day into his conversation. At first, Yvonne thought he was kidding, gently mocking their mutual friend, but he was not kidding. By the third date, Yvonne's elbows locked into her side in agitated anticipation as she listened to him steer the conversation in a direction that would allow him to incorporate the word pleonexia. <laughs> At a bus stop bench, she sat him down, Whatever is happening between us is fugacious, she told him, knowing he would understand. It was Saturday, and fugacious had been Thursday's word. When Yvonne reached the main road, she drove out of Dacha without knowing the speed limit or how fast she was going. 
She didn't care to convert kilometers to miles. Just as she didn't want to convert the temperature digitally provided in Celsius on the Renault's control panel to Fahrenheit. Rather quickly, the stations on the car's radio began to fade to static, all except one that broadcast a woman telling jokes in Turkish, each joke punctuated by a laugh track. She told a joke every minute, and the laughter lasted for six seconds, never more, never less. It made Yvonne happy to hear the laughter, as perfunctory as it was. Other people's happiness pleased her, now more than ever. Why? She sped past gas stations, so many gas stations, each with its owner's name printed at the bottom of the list for prices for diesel, prices for premium gas. She drove past olive trees, sleeping cows, and roadside stands displaying row upon row of porcelain swans, their beaks all turned in the direction of the sun. She was slowed by trucks doing road work ahead, and from the burn in her nostrils, she surmised they were pouring tar. As she trailed a slow line of cars, she grew increasingly impatient. At an intersection, a small sign caught her eye. Knidos, 35 kilometers, it said, with an arrow pointing to the left. She turned. Knidos. She had not known it was so close. She remembered the name, would always remember it. Knidos was penciled onto the back of the photo Peter had taken of her there on the last day of their honeymoon. In the photo, she was smiling in front of an ancient white amphitheater, wearing a sundress patterned with halved pomegranates. Peter had the photo framed and propped on his desk for his entire career at the high school, and not a semester passed without him telling her a fellow teacher had commented on Yvonne's beauty, her youth, on the way the photo had captured something they hadn't seen before, but now could not believe had escaped their notice. For the first 15 minutes of the drive to Knidos, Yvonne wound up a hill, the top of which she could not see. She felt dwarfed by the mountains around her, which were spotted with short trees at their base, dotted with white rocks in their middle, and bald at their peaks. Soon, the road grew curvier, and Yvonne seemed to be emerging above the surrounding mountains. She passed roadside stalls where village women sold honey and almonds. The women wore scarves around their heads and had thick walking sticks by their sides. Yvonne stopped the car to allow a woman to amble across the road. The woman was bent at her hips, her back horizontal, her cane short. Yvonne would have bought anything from her, but the woman had nothing to sell. Yakakoi set a sign, and a minute later Yvonne was in the heart of the village. The road turned narrow and bumpy, lined on either side with crumbling and gray buildings that had once been white. Aging men in baseball hats stood in the shade of a bar, watching as she passed. Donkeys seemed to squeeze her car from either side, and the old women gathered in front of the town's two deteriorating moss narrowed the road further. Yvonne drove slowly, the tires of the rental car barely turning, and when she was released from the claustrophobia of the town, she picked up speed. The landscape was more rugged now, the hills whiter with rock. Any minute, she felt she was approaching something wondrous. Any minute now, she thought, and there it was, suddenly spread below her, the Aegean gleaming in the sun. The road descended, and she paused at a turn and looked down on Knidos. The land itself had an hourglass shape, and where it narrowed at the middle, the harbor had formed on each side. One harbor was empty except for a small fishing boat. The other was wide, majestic, eight or nine yachts docked there, all with tall white masts bearing flags. As she watched, a wooden boat glided in smoothly, like a prop being pulled by invisible strings across a stage. On the radio, the laughter continued. 
The road ended at a lot where only six other cars were parked. Most people arrived at Knidos by small boats descended from larger boats. As, as Yvonne stepped out of the car, she was believed to feel a light wind quivering through the heat. She was pleased she would be spending the day here rather than in Dacha. More than pleased, she was proud of herself for coming here, proud of the road for leading her here. Knidos contained all the beauty of worlds old and new. There was the amphitheater facing the harbor. She had taught ancient civilizations for two years, and now she imagined performances and stage battles taking place on the water. She walked past a restaurant, the only building in Knidos, where waiters pushed open large umbrellas as though offering them to the sun. Above her, among the ruins, she could make out visitors posing for photos. Yvonne made her way to the beach, and then she was alone. She stretched out her faded towel, its texture rough from being, having dried on a clothesline. The boats in the harbor were bigger and more beautiful than the ones docked in Dacha. Many had two masts and sharp bows, their wood polished and smooth, simultaneously golden and dark. Each bore a different flag, Turkish, Italian, German, French, and one Yvonne couldn't readily identify, Montenegro. The vessels were close enough to shore that she could make out passengers on the decks with their bikinis and magazines and dark tans, nothing like the orange shades of skin in Dacha. I should pause here and say that I had Yvonne observe something that I observed when I was in Dacha, which is that everyone in this town of Dacha was burned to, a, or tanned, I should say, to a very peculiar shade of orange. And it was without, you know, without fail, every single person was orange. And, um, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And if there are any dermatologists, I keep waiting for someone to, like, to write me or something and tell me what it was. Because I was like, well, was it the reflection of the rocks? You know, I had all these theories. And then I realized that maybe there was, because um, it was such a small town, there's probably only one store selling self-tanner. And I know a lot of people, before they go on vacation, like to get um, self-tanner. And there are a lot of Germans in this town. I don't mean anything against Germans, but I know a lot of Germans do self-tanning before tanning. So I think that this is my explanation. If anyone has a better theory, please let me know. I'm dying to know. <laughs> At the boat's sterns, fully dressed women were busy setting tables with plates, glasses, and utensils that reflected silver-white light in the sun. It was approaching lunchtime. The sea made a sound like breath, inhaling and exhaling steadily. Yvonne stood, removed her sundress, dipped one heel in the water, and then carefully molded her feet over the rocks and the moss until she was waist deep in the ocean. The temperature was perfect, cool enough to wash away the heat of the day. She dove in with her eyes closed and swam for a few strokes before flipping onto her back and then to her side. The salt content was so high that she felt the ocean was ejecting her, as though she would soon rise above it. She splashed the water away and watched the ripples. It seemed it had been months, years, since she had left a trace of herself in this world. A grief counselor her son Matthew had sent to her home, in lieu of coming himself, it seemed, had accused her of trying to be invisible. You seem to want to cease to exist too, the woman said, just before Yvonne asked her to leave. Yvonne plunged in deeper and swam for as long as her breath would hold. When she emerged, she saw she had traveled closer to one of the boats with a Turkish flag. She could hear voices calling to each other from one end of the boat to the other, and then in her direction. A woman with a bright white scarf tied around her head was clipping laundry to a line on the side of the boat. She addressed Yvonne, first in Turkish, then in English. How feels the water, she said. Refreshing, Yvonne shouted back. What do you say, said the woman. It's nice, Yvonne said and the woman nodded as though this was something she already knew. Where are you from, said the woman. 
She was wearing a white blouse tucked into long white shorts, her waist circled by a dark blue belt. United States, Yvonne said as she swam closer to the boat. Swimming and shouting at the same time was exhausting. She switched to the breaststroke so she could speak more easily. We're in the U.S., said the woman. She pronounced the letters U and S carefully as though spelling a word for a child. Near New York, Yvonne said. She was tired of explaining Vermont. Oh, said the woman, I was near to there. My daughter, she lives in Vermont. <laughs> That's where I'm from, said Yvonne. It was strangely welcoming to find a woman hanging laundry on the other side of the world who knew something about where Yvonne lived. She felt as though the woman could picture the mismatched greens of Yvonne's living room couch and chairs, the coat rack that stood in her entryway like a leafless tree. Please, said the woman, you must come on the boat. Please, I invite you to have a glass of tea with ice. Yvonne had no choice but to accept. What would be her excuse not to? That someone was waiting for her on the beach? Once she returned to her towel, she would be alone, as the woman in white would be able to see. Yvonne swam to the boat. The aluminum ladder was warm on her hands, and Yvonne could hear the water dripping from her swimsuit onto the rungs as she lifted herself up. The woman was waiting for her, a plush white towel in her hands, and she wrapped it around Yvonne as if she were a champion swimmer finishing a record-breaking heat. And I'm going to stop there because you know that she's not alone. You know she's going on the boat. And if you want to find out what happens, um, you, can, you can read at your own leisure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.